Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you and welcome to another edition of Pathway to Peace, a show where we take an analytical look at how we achieve peace, whether that be political peace, economic peace, societal peace, or perhaps the most important of them all, inner peace. The cost of living crisis has hit hard. Inflation in the UK has reached an all-time high, affecting prices for household requirements such as food, clothing and fuel, necessitating a reluctant reduction in spending on these essentials. Recently, we have heard of people having, having to choose between eating and heating, a reference to eating less just to afford paying high utility bills to heat their homes. However, this has not been balanced by a corresponding rise in wages and people are now feeling the pinch. There are a number of reasons for this, according to a recent BBC News article, including political instability in Europe, higher gas and electricity prices, lower savings and insecure employment. Taking these changes into account, many people simply cannot absorb the extra cost they are now having to deal with on a daily basis. Sadly, solutions like food banks have exploded in number in recent times. Even employed key workers such as nurses are being advised on how to use them. The Trussell Trust is a charity that has helped almost 2 million people in food poverty between 2019 and 2020 and now supports 1,400 food banks in the UK, alongside other charitable and religious organisations. In a first world country such as the UK, it is heartbreaking to know that 14.5 million people, including 4.5 million children, are living in poverty. So in our show today, we will study the cost of living crisis in the UK and abroad. We will take a look beyond the causes identified by the BBC News article and discover the real reasons why this is happening and if it is avoidable. We will then discuss solutions advised by both secular econo economists and Islam and the Islamic philosophy underpinning them to guarantee economic and societal peace. I'm your host, Dr. Alia Khan, a GP and mother, and joining me for this show are Dr. Anne-Marie Ionescu, a medical doctor converted to Islam as a teenager, and Miss Sarah Ward, a mother and a teacher. Welcome to the show, ladies. Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. So Sarah, talk to me about the cost of living crisis. What does it actually mean to us here in the UK? Well, I think that it's probably an issue that's been looming uh, for a while, uh, but it hasn't really kind of touched on us um, until perhaps just the past year, especially. Mm. It's become very acutely obvious in the past mm. year. Um, I think, you know, we've seen, you mentioned food banks. Mm. And if I look back at my childhood, there weren't, there weren't any food yeah. banks that were visible. Yeah. Maybe there were some that were operating from charities. But now you have a food bank in every supermarket you go into. Um, and that's shocking. And I think we are sort of immune to how shocking that is, that there mm. are people in work who require free food because their work yeah. doesn't cover the cost of living. So this is why it's a cost of living crisis. Mm. It doesn't refer to, you know, the very poorest of our society who've always been there, mm. but it refers to those working people whose wages do not cover just the cost of living. We're not talking about luxuries of holidays, mm. of new cars, of um, excessive things, but just about food, the basics, food and water, etc. 
So, you know, in the past year, especially, the general overall picture here in the UK is that inflation is rising and prices are going up. And I mean, it's going up tremendously and quickly and noticeably. Nobody in the UK who goes to a supermarket or fills up their car with petrol can have failed to notice how much prices are rising and how quickly. Um, and the second one, of course, is is energy that we're all quite worried so much so that the government are giving help to all households because the price of mm. energy is going up. That's right. So, you know, these items are considered basic for survival, heating and food. Mm. And they're getting more expensive and people can't afford them. Mm. So Jack Monroe is a very well-known um, sort of activist and commentator. She's been working for a number of years on, um, you know, how poor people can afford to, mm. to live. Food, and food poverty, I think, is her exactly. sort of you know, main focus, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, she noticed back in November last year, uh, she had analysed a lot of data. She analyses mm. every week the price of the most basic. So we're talking about the basic range of items in the supermarkets. Mm. She particularly focused and worked with Asda on their range, but it also applies to other, other brands as well. So it was reported in November 2021 that um, according to the Consumer Price Index, which is a government organisation that monitors inflation, that inflation in December was at the highest level for nearly 30 years. And back in December, inflation was 5.4%. It's now 9.1%. So even since December, it's almost doubled. Mm. Um, so then this CPI are monitoring the, the, through the cost of basic staples and, and the shopping baskets of goods. Um, so they monitored that and they said, you know, it's going up and it's still going up. And then Jack Monroe came along and looked at the basics value, like mm. the smart price basics and the value ranges. And what she said is, those are the aspects of supermarket food which are going up and increasing the most. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a pasta that might have been 27p had gone up to 50p, which is, you know, nearly 100% increase, mm -hmm. for example. Whereas the cost of, you know, more expensive items such as ready meals, you know, they might be £7.50 mm -hmm. and they've been £7.50 for 10 years mm -hmm. and they haven't increased. So all of the work that Jack Moreau was doing back in, in November and December was all about why is the cheapest section of the supermarket increasing mm. the most because it will hit the poorest hard. Um, so she's done a lot of work around that and it's actually gained a lot of traction. People are actually now more aware and supermarkets have responded to that. So that's that's one aspect. I mean, mm. I'm a teacher. I work in schools. The cost mm. of living crisis to me um, is, you know, we're seeing children that are hungry. We're seeing children that can't afford trips. We have more parents that are saying, you know, we can't afford this contribution, which they're voluntarily asked for. Um, so schools are trying their best to do more in that regard. But also schools are not getting funding from, from the government. So, for example, you know, we'll talk later on about how, how do we respond to this growth in inflation. So as a teacher, my proposed increase for salary next year is five percent which is not keeping up with inflation which is actually a pay cut yeah um but the government are only giving the schools um uh sort of like a three percent increase for the teacher's salary mm. so that means if i hold out for more and i ask for more my school will suffer and i'll mm. be working in more difficult circumstances 
maybe some support staff have to lose their job. So this is where you kind of think about justice, how the system is working, because if I want more, somebody else is going to suffer. If I take more, it's at the expense of somebody else. So I think that that's that's really interesting. And, um, you know, we're introducing why we're talking about this at the moment. And there's a lot of talk in the media about the cost of living crisis. You know, politicians, we currently have the conservative leadership race going on. And um, there's a lot of talk about benefits and the benefit system and how much the government should step in and help people when there's a crisis, which this clearly is. So, you know, the government have stepped in and they have given some help with the cost of energy and fuel, for example. But the leadership candidates, for example, Suella Braverman, um, she's quoted as saying, you know, I think we spend too much on welfare. There are too many people in this country of working age who are of good health who are choosing to rely on benefits on taxpayers' money, on your money, my money, to get by. <laughs> and she said, I don't think there's enough rigour and, um, you know, we need to do more, mm. even though she herself claimed £159,000 in expenses <laughs> last year, which is far more than anybody on benefits gets. So the reason I'm mentioning this is because the people in the dis- with the decision-making have got a perception that the poor are lazy. Are lazy. Mm. Yeah. Or the poor are somehow to blame. They haven't worked hard enough. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, we're a pathway to peace. And I feel like, is that a just analogy? Are the poor to blame? It's a very Victorian view of poverty. Are poor people to blame? Do they just need to work a bit harder? than Or is it sort of more of a systematic, uh, systematic thing? And I contrast that view of, of, the, of our leaders, of our potential political leaders, with the view that I see amongst children, for example. In my class, we studied Africa this year. My, my class are six or seven years old. And we looked particularly at um, Kibera, which is an illegal settlement in Nairobi. So it's an illegal settlement. People don't have plumbed in water. People don't have electricity. They live in you know, shacks made out of um, corrugated iron is a very, very difficult place full of extreme poverty where people don't even eat sometimes for several days. And my children watching videos from a charity, it was called Lunch Bowl Charity, watching videos about this place, none of them said, oh, why don't they work harder? Why don't they do something? Why are they expect, you know, they all of the children without exception said, what can we do? How can we help them? How awful that they have to live like mm. this. So within us, innately, there is a compassion. Mm. And we want to help those who are <clears throat> in, in a crisis, like we're having a cost of living crisis. So, I mean, it was something we'll go on to talk about in the program, but there's a mismatch between that innate compassion and the decisions being made by leaders. By and the I powerful. Think, Mm. Exactly, by the ones who have the, the, the ability to alleviate poverty. Um, so it'd be interesting to kind of unpick and analyse why there's this mismatch. Thank you, Sarah. And I agree, it's sad, isn't it? And we're, so, we're feeling so deflated. And for a politician to actively bemoan compassion, which is an innate human quality in the inter- interest of votes, I mean, why am I not shocked? Um, so, Anne-Marie, Sarah summarised what's going on in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what's going on abroad? Is it matched by this or is something else happening? 
I mean, I think the UK is not an isolated case of rising mm. um, cost of living inflation with rising energy um, bills and other living costs, essentially. So, I mean, I think we've we've most of us have seen what's been going on in Sri Lanka most recently with the economic collapse and the government fleeing the country. Um, many have kind of mentioned that this is probably a combination of corruption and poor long-term financial control with um, other acute issues like um, crop failure uh, and because of the rise in the cost of fuel which is how we manufacture Mm. fertilizer as well it's it's meant that the farmers have Mm. essentially suffered a domino effect on a lot of these downstream industries so Sri Lanka is one example of how the extreme end you know, has shown up in essentially economic collapse of the country. Um, But, you know, other countries like Turkey, for example, is another country that's struggling. Um, I discovered recently that it's actually a country that has the second highest inflation in the world after Zimbabwe. Um, So a, a lot of people have kind of discussed and opined that the global economic recession is probably, um, a kind of a, a mixture of the pandemic with lockdowns, um, stagnating businesses and um, with borders closing, it meant trade had really stagnated um, mm. and travel bans. Exactly, you know, no tourists. Local businesses that were dependent upon uh, tourism and other, you know, kind of depended generally on on travel and the movement of people between borders but also regional conflicts as well such as the most Mm. recent one in Ukraine you know has meant that there's been a rise in wheat uh, and energy prices Mm. as a result of that conflict so you know the UK for sure isn't um, the only one suffering from a a rise in cost of living Um, uh, so you know but I think in addition with the UK that they've also got the issue of Brexit, which has kind of been added on top of everything else that's been going on. So, um, but again, there's, we're not the only one suffering from it. Pakistan, for example, has uh, recently had uh, massive issues with huge debt resulting in, you know, the currency value dropping by 20% in the last three months, which was reported. Um, uh, So, you know, with a large proportion of their population that already is uh, under poverty, um, there's many difficulties that are going alongside that. But we're not the only people that are suffering from essentially Mm. a cost of living crisis, really. Thank you, Anne-Marie. So we've talked about some of the issues we're seeing both at home and abroad. Sarah, why do you think they're happening? Are these standalone issues coincidentally sort of happening at the same time? I mean, you know, um, Anne-Marie's talked about uh, the some of the factors globally that have affected um, mm. what's going on. But is it that there is a wider financial picture that we need to be aware of that's leading towards a crisis? What, what do you think? I mean, I think absolutely we have to think about the system as a whole across the globe. Yes, countries can do certain things within themselves, but we saw in 2008 how interconnected the globe is with all these banks lending to each other, countries lending to each other, people being in debt to one another. um, And that's on a countrywide scale. We can't talk about country by country basis without understanding that the system is set up to create these inequalities. So, you know, um, basically, the debt, there's three main reasons that 
that, uh, that f- help fun- three main aspects that help a financial system to function mm. or that are leading to this crisis at the moment there's debt consumption and work now in a healthy society you'd have less debt and mm. the consumption would fit the much how much work you do but we've now got globally this imbalance where countries have huge debts and they're consuming mm. more than they have got coming in and they're working less mm. perhaps so this is why sort of basically across the globe the debt debt is at the root of it countries are in debt to one another um, for millions and trillions of pounds and especially during covid debt has just increased enormously and with debt comes interest and you have to repay mm. so you know we'll go on to talk about interest in the future mm. but um, it's obviously anybody whether it's an individual person in their own home whether it's a national government or the international money scene, where you have huge amounts of debt and huge amounts of interest, those who have debt are going to be poorer because they have to pay back more than they borrowed. And so it's a very vicious cycle that's extremely hard to get out of. And we've seen countries in the developing world borrow so much and have to have their debt cancelled essentially at some points because they just couldn't even make the repayments on the interest. Mm. And so I think I understand that consumerism, like you were saying, this consumption, people just not having the patience anymore to save up for things. They want want things now. And a capital interest-based system, it sounds like they're just toxic, aren't they? They're toxic partners. And eventually it will it will lead to ruin. But, you know, Anne-Marie, I mean, if my credit score was not good, for example, uh, my loan request will be turned down in a bank. So where's that global financial scrutiny then? Why are these countries being allowed to just borrow more and more? Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the question is really one of financial governments. You know, where where does one draw the line and make the decision that enough is enough? You know, why are countries allowed to carry on borrowing endlessly, but mm. not kind of the average person in society? Um, I mean, we mentioned Sri Lanka earlier. Yeah. They're in a pretty sticky situation now where they're actually borrowing money from China to pay China back for previous debts. I mean, it's a it's a it's a very odd farcical, isn't it? situation yeah, in many ways. Um, so I think it is a, a question of, you know, where where is the off switch, essentially? When do we mm. stop continuously borrowing? Um, so, I mean, in 2008, with the financial with the financial crisis, then with the, the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown, he visited Saudi Arabia to try and draw more business into mm-hmm. the country, um, discussing loans, etc. Mm-hmm. And even the the financial crash of Greece uh, in recent years, um, you know, it, it led to the country taking on even more debt when it was already crippled by debt at the time. Um, and now it's at the point where it's had to sell its nationalized economies like water and sanitation to larger European corporations uh, instead of filing for bankruptcy, uh, which is the road that would usually um, be met with anyone else as an individual mm. in society. Exactly. So, you know, there is this perception that nations, nation states are allowed to sort of bend rules um, mm. and they aren't they shouldn't be allowed to fall. Um, compared to the individual person that is will eventually you know essentially file for bankruptcy and it's 
it's probably because somewhere someone somewhere is benefiting from the expense of a, a nation borrowing further um and i think tied in with that is also the issue of you know a lack of financial scrutiny in terms of offshore havens where the very wealthy um, mm. individuals but also large corporations who want to siphon their money away um they will hire companies to hide their money mm. in you know multiple shell companies abroad mm. in order to avoid paying too much tax or what they mm. perceive as too much tax <clears throat> um so there there is an immense amount of unpaid tax um and so um you know public funds are essentially lost to these havens where um where essentially this this large amount of wealth is being siphoned away and is being kept from um you know basically being kept from the public um there's very little scrutiny here in mm. these situations because essentially it's the rich and powerful that use these facilities and use these means to hide um, their wealth and it's also the same people the rich and powerful that occupy positions of power in countries and in government so there's it's not a coincidence i would say um mm. you know if you have this issue with countries and larger you know nations essentially continuously borrowing money because there's a perception that they can't fall but there is someone on the other side that will be uh, benefiting from this relationship essentially mm. um, it's interesting what you're saying about the scrutiny and how it varies you know between like someone uh, just a, a a normal citizen who wants to borrow money and for them there are so many hurdles and yet like you're saying the rich and powerful they've got these avenues open to them and they're not actually under scrutiny and then it's the same people that are occupying positions of power so they're making the rules for themselves basically Absolutely. so that's interesting yeah all right um thank you ladies for sort of putting some perspective uh, putting this uh, crisis into perspective and how it's affecting people all over the world and interesting what Anne-Marie is saying about somebody somewhere is benefiting um so let's talk, turn to solutions. What is out there to help with the cost of living crisis? Um, and if we start with sort of non-Islamic solutions first, I mean, I'm bearing in mind what the money-saving expert Martin Lewis um, it, it has, has done uh, in the UK. I mean, recently, in the past few years, he's been amazing, hasn't he, in terms of advising the general public on how to manage austerity, um, but even he said last week in a television interview that he is out of ideas and he appealed to the politicians that they need to step in and take charge. I mean, that just really blew me away that somebody who always has ideas, is never ending ideas person about how to watch your finances, how to save money, how to swap um, energy providers, things like that. Even he was saying, you know what? my notebook is empty, I'm, I'm out of ideas. And the financial anthropologist Jason Hickel in his book, The Divide, talks about some issues causing these crises and what solutions are um, available in the chapter from charity to justice. So Sarah, could you start us off with some of those issues? I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head there when you talked about individuals being can do everything that they can to save mm. money, but yet the system is not working for the poorest yeah. amongst us. Yeah. Um, so it's a structural thing, and that includes the structure of the financial system across the globe. And we do have these international organizations, such as um, 
the IMF and the World Bank, who are supposed to coordinate on a global scale. But actually, I was just looking at some uh, evidence that they've published recently. And what they've said is that where extreme poverty for the poorest in the globe has been falling for 20 years, it's now in the past year increased. So that means that extreme global poverty was being tackled and is now increasing. And they listed three reasons. They said climate change, the COVID pandemic, and um, just, you know, general energy uh, conflict. Mm. So they've these are global things. Mm. You know, they're not by any one nation state. Climate change cannot be solved by one country. COVID couldn't be solved by one country and conflict couldn't be solved. So these are international problems. But the issue is that with global democracy, there is this un- unequal justice mm. where some countries have more swaying power than others. So the IMF, for example, they have voting rights and they mm. have veto power. So the USA has a power of veto. Somewhere like uh, Rwanda or perhaps Guatemala, where they are seeing on the ground the impact of climate change, they are seeing mm. malnourishment in their children. They have no power of veto. They don't mm-hmm. have very strong voting rights. So their voice is, is an unequal platform and, an, and, and, and it's not just um, because some people have more sway than others. And that happens across a wave of global organizations, including the World Trade Organization, which also works in favor of trade and uh, benefits those who are already countries that are already developed. Um, so, you know, these these problems of, of income and inequality are historic. They're based on a legacy of materialism and colonialism and unequal trading laws where some countries went and took, took goods from other countries and sold them at a profit without benefiting the people mm. who'd, who'd produced them or without the benefiting... the countries where they originated from. Exactly. Yeah. So this is, you know, a historic structure. This structure mm. is not new. Mm. It's been there for a long time. And mm. But interestingly, uh, what as I've just said about the increase in extreme global poverty, it has been in countries where which already have a high percentage of people in global poverty, and it's we're looking at like 88 to 150 million people slipping mm-hmm. into it's not a small amount of people no. but how often do we hear about that in yeah. our media and our news no, no. but conversely in the UK during the pandemic there's been a rise in the number of billionaires so there's now 177 billionaires i mean somebody with a billion pounds can never spend it mm-hmm. but these things are just indicators of a global system that's unequal and unjust Mm-hmm. And in which the poorest amongst the globe continue to suffer, to suffer. due to the actions of others. So, Anne Marie, um, Sarah touched a little bit on uh, trade. Can you expand on that and any other issues? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, the issue of trade is one that's, um, you know, it's a huge, huge topic. Um, but, you know, in terms of we touched a little Sarah touched a little bit upon about developing countries as well that are kind of at the mercy um, of developed uh, nations and developed economies. Um, you know, developed countries have this expectation um, to have complete fair trade or open trade um, with developing countries. And, and they, they expect developing countries to essentially just open their markets to everybody. 
um, and they and the developed nations will then close off their markets to other countries if they see there is a threat mm-hmm. to their own local economies. So, i.e., they, they'll practice protectionism. Mm-hmm when it suits them but then mm. we'll preach <laughs> liberal market economies globally mm. um, and we'll essentially through uh, the world trade organization and other kind of forums will force countries to open up their markets to a huge um, experienced cor- corporations like coca-cola johnson johnson's etc you know there's many of these corporations um, they will those kind con- the developing nations will have their uh, economies and their markets at the mercy of these much larger experienced companies um, that will enter their economies and then local companies within those developing countries offering the same product uh, <laughs> in those countries will struggle because they won't be able to compete with these large international corporations um, and that dries up local economies and it has a massive impact on these uh, developing countries developing their own economies and well, it just stamps but, on their entrepreneurs doesn't it it's those yes. people that have entrepreneurial flair and have got ideas and they just cannot um develop them exactly exactly mm. so um you know it's it, it's not like the developed nations like the u.s britain european mm. nations were always very developed you know yeah. you can look back in um economic policy and in books that were written many years ago when it when it explored the history of how mm. um these nations became more developed and established in their economies and they most of the time practice protection protectionism um, mm. early on until their economy um, was very developed and then expanded their trade abroad. So it's unfair to actually expect developing countries who are still trying to um, kind of develop a strong economy um, to open their markets completely mm. um, to these international corporations Um you know to to essentially make a a massive profit at the expense of the local people um and following on from that you know thing we mentioned a little bit about wages so sarah mentioned wages as well you know cheap cheap labor abroad is um um is is a massive issue as well so corporations move to countries where there is cheaper labor so so in a way it, it does actually affect developed nations as well where um we wouldn't necessarily be able to access that particular labor market because those com- those companies will take their business abroad to hire cheaper labor from other countries you know call centers in india for example um and then the problem with zero hour contracts which has been in the news for for quite a while um so it's cheaper for employers mm. Um, essentially to take up zero hour contracts and Mm. but much more risky for employees there's no guarantee of work even though you've got a contract you've got no guarantee that you're actually going to work 30 hours or whatever it may be that you normally need to survive absolutely Mm. yeah Thank you, Anne-Marie. So Anne-Marie's talked about injustices that countries make towards each other, promoting their own uh, brands and businesses to the detriment of lower-income countries. Um, And Sarah, uh, are there any more issues that you could identify? I mean, I think one of the other um, issues within this global system, whether it's on a national scale or an international scale, is the issue of tax. Mm. Um, Because, you know, if you're... uh, subsistence farmer in in certain parts of the world you're not going to have any spare income to give to the government on tax if you're in an oil rich uh 
you know, country, the country doesn't need tax from you because it has enough wealth from its oil. Um, and then in the more developed countries where we do have this traditional system of tax, um, actually what's happening at the moment due to the cost of living crisis, which is what we're discussing, um, is that the tax burden is increasing. Mm. But it's not a wealth tax, it's an, a tax on income. So the working people are burdened more and the tax increase is the, is the tax burden is the highest it's been in 70 years, mm. but only on the working people. So if you're inherited wealth, you're not paying more tax. But if you're working in a job with a, a below inflation pay rise, um, you're still having a higher burden of tax. So there's some notion of inequality in terms of how does a government justifiably set about raising revenue from its working people? And there's a lot of conversation to be had about how that should be done. And government spent a lot of time thinking about that. Mm. It's an interesting point, isn't it? Tax evasion leads to wealth hoarding and promotes inequality. I mean, that's just an injustice to a country's citizens, isn't it? Where they're actually unable to access public money that's rightfully theirs, that could actually help them come out of the situation that they found themselves in. So just a reminder to our listeners that you are listening to Pathway to Peace, a weekly show where we look at societal issues affecting us and how we can identify solutions to bring us all peace. Today, our discussion is around the cost of living crisis. We have talked about the size of the problem currently and how it is apparent worldwide. We have identified possible causes and some solutions also have been looked at. However, these go against the grain of capitalist society. Now we will turn to the role of Islam as a philosophy to answer to global injustice, focusing on equality and the duties of those better off towards those who are are not as privileged to bring about economic and societal peace. So Anne-Marie, as we know, Islamic teachings are underpinned by justice. If we had financial systems based on justice, what would that look like? So I think we have to look at the bigger picture on how Islam, you know, tackles the issue of economic peace. Um, So humans, you know, one could argue has a greater need than just physical needs. You know, they have moral needs, they have spiritual needs as well. Mm. And looking back in history, you know, theology or religious organizations have sought to try and provide for all needs in a sort of more holistic uh, manner. Um, But since, you know, the last few generations, I would say it's been pretty much utterly abandoned. Um, And there there is no field of study that has really tried to understand the human condition in this holistic view. Whereas Islam in many um, different topics, not just economics, but in other areas as well, tries to address mankind in a more holistic view. Um, And as you know, as I mentioned, modern economics has essentially rejected many of these other aspects of the human conditions like the spiritual moral needs of man Um, and slowly uh, but surely they've constructed their own framework you know where essentially the worship of the market has has taken precedence over the worship of god Um, there was a really good article that was published on the platform rational religion um, and it was penned by uh, an economist called daniel arif and just to quote his article um, it, he said, without a belief in God, a deep concern for the welfare of others is admirable, but optional. Um, but, 
So Islam, you know, has fundamentally a very different attitude towards, you know, individual finances, but also more global um, finances in terms of a nation state. So it, it allows both for the capitalist idea of increasing work um, and therefore greater reward and also free spending, but also has ideas that were similar to that of the communist kind of philosophy in which it limits hoarding of wealth um, mm. by enacting policies to prevent hoarding. So, for example, um, land hoarding, you know, if if a tax, if if a land isn't being used, then it's taxed and it's used for the benefit uh, of society um, as long as the land is being used productively. Um, and if it's not being used, you're just hoarding it just to watch the the price of the land go up over time, then that is essentially will be taxed under an Islamic system. Gold and money hoarding. Um, <clears throat> so you're taxed on assets, you know, otherwise known yeah. as capital taxation rather than income taxation, um, which is one of the pillars of Islam known as zakat. Um, and we can expand on this a bit later. Um, but, you know, this tax was drawn in to provide mm. security and maintenance of society, which all ties into mm. economic peace <clears throat> in larger society uh, as a whole. Um, so, you know, during the time of uh, the second caliph, after the prophet, peace be upon him's death, um, Hazrat Umar, um, there were many kind of social safety nets that he implemented during that time to try and um, further provide for economic peace and societal peace through the through the realm of finances. Mm. Uh, so, for example, he instituted the first known sort of pension allowance, um, um, <clears throat> and this was kind of enacted when he he uh, interacted with an impoverished elderly Jewish man, um, and uh, he es essentially came came to the opinion that we kind of uh, benefit from your youth, but then in your elderly age, we discard you. And that's how he then decided to implement the, the pension system that uh, thereafter. There were, there were other um, social policies, again, that kind of focused on trying to bring about economic peace through ch child and infant stipends and additional food allowance. Um, and this is uh, related to the to the verse in the Holy Quran in chapter 51, verse 20, where it states, and I quote, and in their wealth was a share for one who asked for help and for one who could not. So it kind of ties ties in the idea that um, that you should be able to provide a safety net for people um, when they come into hard mm. times, um, but also. Um, to be able to provide uh, a means for people who are able to provide for themselves, but definitely to provide a safety net there. Um, I mean, I think it's so interesting listening to you, Anne-Marie, that the lens that we're looking through this from is that we're living in the UK that has got a welfare state and it has been there for 70 years. So we've got, you know, um, financial support if you're out of work or you're disabled or there's pension support and there's free health care etc but actually these things are quite new in our country and it's only a few generations back you know you think of Victorian poverty in the UK these initiatives that you're describing are new to our country they didn't exist 100 years ago but in Islam these were created and and embedded in Islamic teaching and Islamic practice 
you know, 1400 years ago, more than a thousand years ago. So although we're looking at it from the lens of, oh, yes, it feels a lot like what we do now. But Islam was doing this so much before mm-hmm. other developed nations, other nations that we know now. And I think sometimes we often forget. And when I think of that, it, it's kind of overwhelming that solutions to these issues that countries have come up with in the last hundred years and some countries still don't have. Um, actually, Islam has put them in the teachings of Islam centuries ago. And it's always kind of awe-inspiring for me to, to pause and to notice that. Absolutely. And that is essentially because Islam you know, um, has looked at mankind in this holistic nature, as I mentioned earlier. It's mm. not look. It's not treating individual issues, you know, as a kind of microcosm or like a one one kind of size fits all. It's it's trying to tie in several areas, finances as well as social security, social maladies, all together into one. So it's looking at, at mankind as essentially in a um, holistic way, which is why you know one could argue that within the Quran, these these um, teachings were expanded upon in this way. And now we're kind of getting to grips with that now, you know, through Western societies kind of doing trial and error and coming to this conclusion as well. Um, and Islam, you know, it, it's it, fundamentally, it tries to limit this income gap, you know, between the richest and the poorest by allowing, you know, a greater circulation of wealth throughout society, you know, by forcing the wealthy to use their wealth in a productive manner rather than just sitting there. Um, There was a really interesting experiment that came across a a couple of years ago, which was conducted in the US, where it compared one dollar circulating in two different communities, um, one which was Jewish and one which was an African-American community, um, where one dollar essentially was passed around seven to eight times uh, within different businesses within the community, uh, within the Jewish community, as opposed within the African American community, where it hardly circulated at all, and and the impact of that was very clear, where it resulted in greater wealth generation, where it circulated more times around within that particular community, and this is the purpose of capital taxation in Islam: is to reduce wealth inequality and improve the circulation of money. So, you know, in other words, a pound circulated seven times in an economy would bring into being seven times the number of goods and services than than a pound circulated once over the same period. So I thought that was a really, really interesting um, study that they conducted there. And it kind of highlighted that this particular issue of trying to limit income inequality by allowing uh, money circulation throughout all of society. That is really interesting, isn't it, Anne-Marie, about um, a community who trusts the vendors from their own community as well. um, And therefore, that community becomes wealthier as a result because they try to circulate their money in that community. That's real food for thought, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are several verses within the Holy Quran that we can we can go into that essentially say that you know the financial status of a person doesn't mean you're above you know anyone else so if you are if you are uh, fortunate enough to have to be wealthy in islam um you you should also you know you shouldn't hold back on your finances because it will benefit other people so uh, a number of verses of the quran discuss this for example in chapter 43 uh, verse 33 and it states 
It is we who distribute among them their livelihood in this life, and we exalt some of them above others in rank, so that they may serve each other mutually. The mercy of thy Lord is better than that which they amass. Mm. So I, you know, people who might not be as wealthy are actually very key um, to everybody's survival in society. Mm. So because they serve each other, and this is exactly what um, this verse of the Holy Quran is saying, that it's actually God who um, provides for the livelihood of people who might be wealthier, but they they all they should also consider serving those who might not be as wealthy because actually we're dependent upon for example key workers Hmm. um, who might not be as highly paid but they are arguably one of the most valuable people in society and we can we saw that very clearly during the pandemic where key workers were essentially the backbone of society running the system you know um you know, bin collectors, rubbish collectors, etc. You know, train drivers, bus drivers—they were absolutely key and they're the backbone of society. But they're not paid as as much as maybe the wealthiest um, in this society. But the wealthiest in society are dependent upon um, these people, essentially working in the background, actually working within this system. Um, and you know, during the life of uh, Hazrat Umar, which I spoke about, the second caliph after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him, he highlighted exactly how important the role of the government actually is um, in trying to establish these economic policies, which he established during his time. And he drew upon the teachings of the Holy Quran here, actually. And I'll just go through a couple of these verses. For example, in um, chapter 20 verse 119 to 120 it states it is provided for thee that thou will not hunger therein nor wilt thou be naked and thou will not thirst therein nor will thou be exposed to the sun so here it highlights the fact that the government or those in power are you know responsible for allowing um for providing for and allowing a system in which people will not hunger and will have adequate access to mm. to clothing uh, and will have access to san- to san- sanitation essentially through clean drinking water and through um having access to uh stable and adequate uh, shelter where it states in the Quran that thou shall not be exposed to the sun um, there's many, many of verses of the Quran which kind of highlight these these um, these issues, including not hoarding gold, silver. Mm. Again, there's another um, uh, verse in the Quran in chapter 934 where it says, and those who hoard gold and silver and spend it not, not in the way of Allah, give to them tidings of a painful punishment. So mm. in other words, you shouldn't try and siphon away your wealth it should be circulated amongst the 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 wider society in order to allow for greater provision for everybody in society Um, but there are many verses like this I've just highlighted just a couple and I think you know what we need to remember is that um, justice is always a fundamental part of Islamic teachings and we've discussed that many times on previous episodes of Pathway Mm. to Peace So Islam recognizes there's a dignity in labor and there's a power in labor. And there are hadith, which uh, sayings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which tell Muslims, pay your worker before their sweat dries. So don't exploit people. Mm. Islam is completely anti-exploitation and pro-justice in all aspects 
Um, and if you delve into some of these teachings, as Anne-Marie was just mentioning, justice and equality, not, not equality, because it recognises that some people may be richer than others, but justice um, and equity are completely underpinning all of the teachings of Islam. And that applies to money as well as other aspects. Thank you, Sarah and Anne-Marie. And I just wanted to go over the taxation system in Islam as well, because obviously we have, um, I think you mentioned before, we have a wealth um, tax compared to an income tax. Some um, critics say that this compulsory levy on wealth compared to income tax is unfair, or conversely, that the 2.5% rate is too low. So um, we said that zakat, which is one of the pillars of Islam, taxes wealth instead of income, and that is about taxing unused wealth. Um, whereas I think Sarah mentioned earlier that income tax is not representative of the overall wealth of an individual. And that's why um, we shouldn't, that's why it will promote uh, inequality between rich and poor if we only tax income. And that's why wealth tax, uh, wealth tax is fairer. Um, and and I, I think I understand that, that if income is taxed, that it's also disadvantages to the poor who haven't acc accumulated wealth. But can taxation, Anne-Marie, work in the current system where the wealthy can offshore their wealth? So, I mean, capital taxation would still work um, with offshore wealth, provided that the owners of the wealth is made clear. Um, the problem now is that shell companies um, that hide other corporations' wealth and other individuals' wealth, um, they, it becomes very difficult to ascertain who the real owner of that asset is mm. um, because it's essentially part-owned by multiple people. And, and each time, for, for example, like an undercover journalist will try to mm. investigate who the real owner of that said wealth is that's being stored abroad, um, they will come across another company that actually owns that particular um, part of the wealth. And then when you dig into that, there'll be another company. So that will then uh, be part kind of part legally part owners of that particular wealth. And then again and again, and it, that's why they're called shell companies. It's a little bit of like the Russian dolls. Um, mm. If you can imagine that where, you know, each time you open one doll, there's another doll inside, but it doesn't mm. actually show what the real owner of that asset no. is. Um, so ultimately, the, you know, the owner of that asset has to be registered and it should be registered um, uh, so that in, in sort of an Islamic system in which you would have to you would have a capital taxation and a wealth uh, tax it would essentially be made illegal so that people so that the government in question would be able to tax people um, adequately so these kind of shell companies and hiding your wealth wouldn't be allowed under this particular system um, but to 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 kind of follow on from that islam is not against wealth or against earning money um, you know, there have been many debates about halal banking or Islamic finance, Islamic trade rules, etc. And this is a huge topic that we won't be able to discuss mm -hmm. in a few minutes. Um, but for listeners who are interested, you know, that um, the the Rational Religion website is a very good platform to kind of discuss this issue where we uh, where the team have actually interviewed um a, a, a Islamic economist such as um, Tariq al-Dawani, who is very well known in the Muslim world, who tackles this um, issues of Islamic finance and halal banking, etc. Um, but specifically, you know, can can 
in in a system where you have capital taxation, would offshore companies and storing off storing your wealth abroad would it, that still work? And it would, but you have to make it very clear who actually mm. owns those assets abroad. Based on honesty, okay. Um, thank you, Anne Marie, for that clarification. So we're just coming up to the last few minutes of our show, very sadly. Sarah, as Muslims, we also have very clear injunctions against the use of interest, which is actually fundamental to the capitalist model that we've been discussing. So can you outline for our listeners what the Holy Quran tells us about the use use of interest and why we are told to stay away from it? I mean, absolutely. The Quran is very, very clear that interest is a corrosive and a negative thing because it doesn't advocate interest in any having any place in the financial system and is completely against against it. So the Holy Quran actually says that whatever you lay out at interest, that that it may increase the wealth of people, it does not increase in the sight of Allah. But whatever you give in zakat, seeking the pleasure of Allah, it is these who increase their wealth manifold. And that's from the Quran, chapter 30, verse 40. So the principle is that people who are using a system of interest are hoping to increase their own wealth. You lend to a person in need and you take back more. So in a system of interest, the poor person who has to borrow is disadvantaged. And the rich person benefits from the disadvantage of the poor person. So it is totally against the equity and the justice that we're talking about earlier. Um, So it is completely forbidden. But interestingly, uh, interest was outlawed in um, other Abrahamic faiths in Christianity and Judaism. And there are many laws that are very strict on charging interest amongst Jews. But over time, um, Jewish people have uh, felt that those laws apply to to Jews who follow the Torah and therefore they could charge interest to non-Jews. So, you know, interest is not advocated by the Abrahamic faiths in any way, shape or form. So while some faiths permit it, it's certainly not um, advocated. Um, And the second Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, so just a reminder that we are members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, founded by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, uh, peace be upon him, the reformer of the latter age, as, as prophesied by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And um, we have the spiritual leadership of Khilafat. So the second Khalifa, Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed, uh, said, interest has been the most important cause of economic and financial cast- catastrophe in the world. And he further said that interest is one of the most destructive economic forces and a major hurdle that stops the poor from moving forward. It is thus imperative that mankind rid itself of interest. So, you know, 100% Islam is very clear. Interest is unjust and it creates inequity, which we're seeing now, and inequality. It increases inequality. And Islam couldn't really be clearer about that. Anne-Marie, I think you wanted to jump in with something that you'd read. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, um, it's interesting that our Caliph has mentioned this and a number of other economists have also recently, actually in recent uh, years, have stipulated that interest is a massive problem. But actually, there is also the Greek philosopher Aristotle who actually said interest was contrary to the very nature of man. For where interest attributes the property of infinity to material creation, that attribute exists solely to God Almighty. So I thought that was quite interesting to quote him as well. 
And I think in recent years, economists have studied the drivers of global recessions, and many have concluded that as private debt increases, so consumer spending and investment decreases, which then shrinks economic activity. Um, and so, you know, we were talking before about how debt basically drives this. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting lesson, isn't it? We're sort of, we're, we're hoping for debt, but debt also shrinks the economy. So it's a real fine balance um, and interest is, is um, never the answer. I think we all agree. Absolutely. I'm afraid, ladies, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for your thoughtful insight, as always. We have learned that the crisis we see now is very much avoidable, that the poverty being experienced by those in middle-class livelihoods could be eased if the system was based on fairness instead of a reliance on interest-based debt and with a sense of duty by the wealthy to share their wealth instead of finding more schemes to hoard it. We have learned that interest is abhorrent in Islam as it perpetuates inequality and its evidences before us with the rich-poor divide showing no signs of narrowing. My guests have given us solutions from both secular society and Islam, and hopefully you can see that they are quite similar. So perhaps the answer lies in collaboration and honest leadership, promoting respect and understanding rather than perpetuating differences and division. It has been a thought-provoking show, and we recognize that only a system based on social equality, such as that found in Islam, has any hope of bringing peace to all. This has been Pathway to Peace with your host, Alia Khan, and guests Sarah Ward and Anne-Marie Ionescu. Please refer to alislam.org for any references and join the conversation on social media using the hashtag VOIPeace. May peace be upon you all.